17-year-old Angela Freeman was last seen on September 10, 1993 here at the old Pizza Hut in Petal. This was the last place that we ever, that anybody ever saw her alive. 17 years old, five months pregnant. Her bloodstained car was just north of Perry County's Monette Bridge. There's a possibility she might be in the river, so we're checking the river right now with the dogs. Rescue workers are searching the river with dogs, and they are also searching the wooded area here. She was, um, had come in from work, and she gave me $80 to pay on her car that we found abandoned out here in Perry County. At this point, we really don't know any more than we did before until we can find her. We're still hoping that it's just not real, you know, that, that she's going to call and say she was, maybe she was abducted and will get away or something, but, uh, it just really doesn't look good at all. And we're working hard every day. We want this case solved. Where are with my home? A little over eight years after Angela Freeman's disappearance, our family held a service to officially say goodbye. On January 12, 2002, they held a graveside service at Greens Creek Baptist Church in Petal, the week that would have been Angela's 26th birthday. Though no body had been found, Deborah purchased a headstone with Angela's picture on it with two cherubs atop either side. About 50 people attended the graveside service. Angela's brother Nicholas who had grown into adulthood in those years, played his tribute song, Angela, to honor his sister. It is the song you hear in the background of this podcast series. The lyrics to the song are scripted down the back of the tombstone, a brother's love chiseled into stone. Others read poems and talked of her love of life and laughter. Over the years, at the front of the headstone, the Freeman family have placed some of Angela's favorite things, teddy bears, flowers, mementos, and they've offered up family milestones aloud. While Angela's physical self isn't here, it is a place Deborah says she can come when she needs to grieve or just talk to her girl. Those first few years, Deborah had gone through the stages of grief multiple times. To get to this day, it was agonizing, and she wasn't finished. She now had a place to go, but still no closer to having her daughter and grandbaby's remains properly buried beneath the hallowed grounds. You are listening to the seventh episode of Telling Lives, a reported podcast series covering old stories in a true way. I'm your host, Elizabeth Christian. many of you know someone who has gone missing. I have several memories of times when a loved one could not be located for a period of time. Pre-cell phones, sometimes it took longer to find people. My sister dropped out of sight for a few days back in 1993. She was 20. 
I can still feel the dread of the hours I pondered all the horrors my brain could conjure up. What hospitals should I call that were near her university? Had she gone with friends for the weekend and lost track of time? Or was she in an accident and trapped in an overturned car? Or worse, had she become a victim of a serial psychopath? Yes, I am a member of the generation that came of age with cable TV and mystery movies of the week. I was able to borrow a whole lot of trouble, as my grandmother would say, when my people weren't where they were supposed to be when they were supposed to be there. Adam, a made-for-TV movie which first aired on NBC in 1983 and told viewers the story of Adam Walsh, who was abducted from a Sears department store, introduced an entire generation of parents and their Gen X children to the notion of stranger danger and the kids on the milk cartons. We grew up scared, yet the probability that a stranger would take us was so minuscule. The likelihood of being taken by a stranger is about one one hundredth of one percent according to the Crimes Against Children Research Center in New Hampshire. And the odds of being murdered by someone you don't have a relationship with is just over 10%, according to an article in the New York Times. Chances are, Angela Freeman fell victim to someone she knew, probably someone she never thought would end her dreams of being a mother, a nurse, a daughter, a sister, a friend. While we were all looking out for the stranger danger, we should have been protecting ourselves from the devils we knew. As for my sister, she made the decision to drop out of college, run off and elope the consequences of which would not be fully realized for more than two decades. After a year of no answers, Deborah was lost. She had to keep waking up and going through the routines of normal daily life. She had another child to care for. She had a husband and bills to pay. But simply getting out of bed and doing basic tasks was a chore when she felt like nothing mattered anymore. A friend suggested Deborah seek support from others who knew quite well what she was going through. She was introduced to June Renfro, who had recently started the SOS Sharing Our Strength Support Group, an outgrowth of her work with the Schaefer Center at the University of Southern Mississippi for people who had lost loved ones to homicide. Deborah started going once a month. Prior to that, for about two years, she had just sunk deeper and deeper into despair and pondered suicide before realizing that Nicholas, her son, would pay the cost. Renfro's own brother, Charles McMichael, was killed in Jackson, Mississippi, in 1990. June told me she knew about Angela Freeman's case before she met Deborah. Uh, well, that's a case that's been in the book for a long, long time. Be honest with you, I've known her for so long, I don't really remember, but if I'm remembering it correctly, which I think I am, someone in her family contacted me and then told Deborah about me because I can remember saying that, you know, I've never worked with this situation before. And so, but anyway, that's how we kind of got connected up. Uh, it was still somebody saying she needs help. So, you know, so I thought, well, okay, this is pretty, you know, we're pretty sure that, uh, that 
She said she had to get past the bitterness before she started healing, and this was in part due to the support group. It's really, really difficult. It depends. In different situations, call different situations. That's the bottom line. So your circumstances, not only that you're dealing with the fact that someone was murdered, you all... You have all these other side things that you're dealing with. All these emotions, you're like I'm on a roller coaster. You're up and you're down and all around. And you're good one day and wake up one in a great mood. Within an hour, you could be a puddle again. It, it's, it's like a roller coaster. You're up and down and up and down. And it takes several years. It took me four years uh, to really realize could do something. I could reach out and help others. I would have never known, you know, and I always, excuse me, I always tell people, this is my brother's legacy. If he had not been murdered, I would have never known there was a need for this. It's grown. That's unfortunate. Renfro has been able to help hundreds of families through the years through this vital support network. Families are thrown into turmoil when they suffer the loss of a child, and when one parent is a step-parent, there's often an imbalance in the level of effect the loss has, which can cause a greater rift in the marital relationship. And if blame sets in, it can be devastating to the marriage. In the cases that I see, if you are the natural parent, it has a much bigger effect on you. If you're not the natural parent, you certainly grieve, especially if that's been a child you raised, even though, you know, wasn't birthed there. Angela's bedroom remained unchanged from the day she walked out on September 8, 1993, until Deborah moved from the home when she and her husband, Bill, divorced after 12 years of marriage. Angela's oversized teddy bear, one of dozens of bears in her collection, has received more hugs and tears from Deborah than it ever did from its young owner. When I visited Deborah's home, she told me she would often curl up on Angela's four-post bed and grieve for her lost child. Framed family photos, folded clothes in dresser drawers, baby girl clothes with price tags still attached, stuffed animals crowding the handmade quilt from Grandma Clough all trick the eye, if not the heart, that a young girl still lives here. In the years following Angela's disappearance, Deborah and Bill grew apart, and not in the normal way that married couples do, becoming more comfortable or even taking each other for granted as routine sets in. Their marriage was never normal. They'd barely had time to celebrate the beginning of their lives together when Angela disappeared, and Deborah's search for Angela consumed her. Rather than having time to focus on her new life with Bill, Angela, who Bill already felt was a wedge between him and Deborah in life, became an even larger one in her absence. After years of it consuming her, Bill told her to move on and get on with it. That's the one thing Deborah could not and cannot do. He was just the main man. How long um, were y'all married? I dated him for five years before we got married. Okay, and We were married for maybe 11 and a half years. You oh, know? okay, so a long time. But then again, he kept telling me things like, Deborah, you need to get on with your life. She's never going to be found. It, she's 
you know, get, get it on. Just get it on with your life. My gosh. And I, and I would take that. And after you take it for so long, your love for that person become hatred. Right. And you don't want to hear anything out of his mouth. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a negative. And you're getting to the point where I don't want to hear it. And I got to the point where I thought I just, I think I want a divorce. Yeah. Well, did you ever, during all this, have, I mean, I know you had to have very, very dark moments, but did you ever have a time when you just, you got angry at God or you oh, lost yes. faith? Oh, yes. That's what pulled me down the last time. I started um, drinking wine, you know, and um, I got on pills. Um, you try to pill. dull the... Yeah. And you don't mix depressant pills with wine. Well, you know, it's, it, um, I mean, you forget. Yeah. You be, but you're not actually there. And the reason why I say that is, is I got so bad at one point in my life that, um, I had a friend of mine took me out to eat. And then the next day, he calls me. He said, how's things doing? I said, okay. I said, I thought you was going to take me out to eat. Oh, wow. And he said, Deborah, we did. We went to, uh, got a steak. And he said, no, we didn't. <laughs> you did not show up here. So well, he said, go look in the refrigerator. I went in the refrigerator, and there's the box. And you had no memory. He said, I, he said, I ordered. I laughed and carried on. Do not remember. That, that part is gone. The divorce was acrimonious, and because of the years of being in the news due to Angela's disappearance, it was covered by the press. However, after months of investigating and getting to know this family, I don't believe the breakup of this family is related to Angela's disappearance. Chief Rusty Keys is confident in this also, and so we won't be discussing it here. The Freeman family has suffered enough more than any mother, brother, and grandmother should have to, so I won't be dragging them through any more torment here. Suffice to say, Deborah and Bill's marriage sadly never had a chance, as literally two weeks into their union, Deborah's sole focus became her missing child. When they separated, Deborah moved in with her mom for a time. I had a nervous breakdown. I did. I did. Right. And uh, I, real, I finally realized that I got off the pills, I got off the thing, I don't take nothing, and I'm back on track. Awesome. But it, it's because I turned to, I... Was it hard to leave the house? Yes, especially in her bedroom. But I got everything in her bedroom. But you know what really was sad wasn't that deal? The, the courts, you know, they said, you got to get, this is what you're going to get, da, da, da. I had to fight. For certain things that he wouldn't give to me, I had to take him back to court. Yes, and the, and then finally the judge said, "Look, you tell your client what I said, and I want it packed up, and I want it out." Oh yeah, he hated her that much, and he wanted to hurt me in the process. Deborah shared that one of her greatest fears is that Angela's life will be forgotten, and she has worked tirelessly the last quarter century to ensure that doesn't happen. Folks in South Mississippi are very familiar with Angela Freeman's story 
because of Deborah's devotion to keeping Angela's memory alive. Even now, having moved more than an hour from Petal, people will occasionally recognize her at work and in the community. Has it helped being away from where I miss this it. happened? Or do people still come in and they know? I do have people that come in there and, ever, you know, sometimes it would be that. Or else, you know, it did come out in Sun Harold. Of course, it's my mother's picture, but people know my name. And a lot of people are going, I've seen your story, you know. And, you know, and um, I have some people, like teachers, you know, they're going to Camper Park. And I'll say, yeah. well, i got Angela Bench there. And the lady would ask me, and, like the last time, right before school was out, there was one teacher going there. And she said, she had to hug my neck, you know. And said, I'm going to go look at that bench. Nicholas who had matured in his walk with God over the years, believes strongly that God's hand is in their family's journey and is holding them until answers are revealed. I've had people, you know, just out of the blue call my mom and say, hey, I was thinking about your daughter. I mean, that stuff just don't happen right. without, you know, without, God, without God being a part of it because I can't tell you any any other missing person cases and, uh, and still being... 25 years later I mean it's very rare right uh, not not anything to do with the, the family it's just I don't know Angela's always people are drawn to her I don't know I, I can't explain it you know but I know I, we've always I've kept on praying to God and I believe that every time he gets trying to get covered up he cools it back out and I'll, at the same time I, I do believe that bringing awareness to Angel's case will make people start thinking like, what about this other guy's case? You know, what about this other person? One of the things that brings Deborah great joy now is seeing Angela and her grandson, Tyler, Nicholas's son. Tyler never knew his aunt, but has grown to know her well from childhood stories shared from his dad. Nicholas still gets very emotional about his sister and has poured much of that into his music to honor her. You know, he wrote songs for her and tried to keep her out there. And sometimes I can't talk to him because he don't understand. Like, what's going on with the investigation? Why ain't they done this? Why ain't they done that? And he gets frustrated. And you're sitting there thinking, you've done all you can do, what you want me to do. Right. You know? But you don't tell him that. And now he's, you know, he's married, he's, you know, but it still bothers him. Yeah. He wants it solved. Right. You know, he, he thinks, you know, they should be doing something. They should, you know, yeah. pick him up. He, I told him, I said, this is not the way he died, Nicholas. Right. It's not that way. He wrote a, um, a song it's been, um, it was a Mother's Day. Um, it's so funny. We, it's when, uh, we were in the car, <laughs> and we were going to eat, you know, and, it's, and then a grandbaby, he's got a, a son, um, Tyler. And he's the only grandbaby I got, actually. But, um, <laughs> and he puts this tape in, and I'm sitting there, and all it says, it says, we'll hear a little boy's voice on there, and he says, 
Grandma Debbie, I love you. <laughs> and then you hear Nicholas start playing, and it's a song he wrote on Mother's Day, and it says about Angela. Would you like to hear it? Mm hmm. I got it over there. Awesome, yes. days now, Deborah's eyes light up when she reminisces about her daughter and good times. But some days, a memory, a glimpse, a laugh, and it all comes crashing back. Knowing that her daughter and unborn grandchild, or what remains of them, are out there somewhere. We've gotten an interesting lead in the last month that we will explore in greater detail in a later episode, and are hopeful that a couple more people with information may reach out to us again, despite their anxiety about reopening old wounds. I've never experienced this kind of never-ending grief. My great-grandfather went missing after World War I. My mother's aunt, doing ancestral research back in the 1980s, discovered that he actually returned from the war and fathered another entire family in North Carolina which, of course, was a shock and a deep hurt to my grandfather and his siblings. The father they adored had not died a war hero. Instead, he returned and simply chose to desert his wife, my great-grandmother, and the children who adored him. I didn't know of this until my grandfather was gone, but I have wondered over the years if some of the pain in his own adult life was the result of that festering wound, of wondering what he might have done differently as the oldest son, to make his father want to come home, a heavy burden for a young boy. Perhaps every family has some sort of skeletons in the closet, of which casual observers and acquaintances remain unaware. If you search the Mississippi Missing and Unidentified website, you realize there are lots of hurting families out there without answers, for months, years, decades. And most of them at those time markers will never get the answers they desperately need to move on in acceptance. Listed by decades, the names and faces of the Mississippi missing. No common denominator by race, gender, age, or region of the state can be defined. Angela Freeman's beautiful bright smile jumps off the screen, along with so many other people 
alive with bright futures ahead that never came to fruition. As I scroll through, clicking each one in some sort of homage to honoring them, if only briefly, to read their short biographies. I wonder how many are alive out there, either by choice or perhaps taken for some sinister purpose. How many are dead by some madman's hand? And how many killed in someone's fit of rage or terrible accident whose perpetrator feared would end their freedom if discovered? At what point is it assumed that a missing person has more likely than not fallen victim to a deadly end? The year Angela Freeman went missing, 1993, was the peak for homicide in America. 12 per 100,000 teens and 25 murders per 100,000 young adults 18 to 25. Since then, violent crime has dropped sharply. Still, thousands go missing and remain unsolved each year with no one held accountable. Sadly, for nearly every face I look at, the answers to their whereabouts will never come. Every one of these faces looking back at me from the computer screen had a life worth telling, and there are so many more on the national site and each state's case files. Two stand out to me instantly as their names have come up during the course of the investigation for this podcast, Glenn Street and Joshua Gerald, both missing from the same area as Angela Freeman. Perry County Sheriff Mitch Nobles has been working diligently on Street's case. Do you think it's ever a wrong assumption is made that somebody's a runaway and evidence is not processed? Or do y'all always have the assumption that this could be a crime scene we need to process this. Yes, I've tried to make it practice to do that. You know, Even if two or three hours later you find them. We go ahead and start making a preparation of finding out where she was last dead mm-hmm. or he was last dead. And, and why do y'all do that? Just to go and preserve that scene to where uh-huh. if there's anything that might be there that's evidence-wise that might link us to where he might be or she might be. And we go ahead and preserve it and treat it as a crime scene, you know, even though it's not a crime scene per se, but we still treat it like that with Mm -hmm. her case. Once they came down and did the official report, you know, we we sent out the, get all the information, and we went on to the residence and and did a uh, search warrant and Mm -hmm. and went ahead and roped off the scene, Mm -hmm. and we went in there and processed everything we could. And she might have popped back the next day. What was her name? Glenn Street. How old was she? She's... 40-something. 40, 40 married with children? She was not married. She was with a living boyfriend, but she did have children. She has three or four children, I think. Oh, how awful. I know she's got three, for sure, three boys, but I think there's a mm. daughter or two, but I, I don't want to quote you wrong. But, uh, yeah. but we immediately went to a residence, and we secured it. We, we did a search warrant. We went in, and, I mean, we once the days rocked on, we started calling we had dolls come in, cadaver dolls. We had live search dolls. We did a helicopter flyover. Uh, we went with uh, game wardens and went to ponds, lakes, everything. We rode trails on four wheelers and ATVs for days. And first, probably two or three weeks, it was every day that was mm-hmm. what we were working on. Street's boyfriend was on parole from a 1982 capital murder conviction in Perry County and remains a person of interest in this case. Her body has not been found. Another missing person from the area, Joshua Gerald, is actually Jeremy Slade's second friend to go missing. He went missing in 2017. If you remember, Slade is Nicholas Freeman's best friend from childhood 
who Angela stopped bullies on the school bus from picking on. It was so surreal. It's two people that I knew had this happen to. That's just mind-blowing. Josh Gerald is another one I wish you'd look into. Tell me the name. Joshua Gerald. But Josh went missing in October of last year. He was actually a guitar player that's played with me and Nick in a couple mm-hmm. of bands. So tell me a little bit about him. Uh, his, his, um, he had a drug problem, so none of us hung out with him anymore, but I still kept in touch with him just to check on his stuff. How old? Um, he's 37, 38, 37, 38. So uh, he was working at Walmart. I actually seen him the day before he went missing. Uh, me and my son were selling Boy Scout popcorn in front of Walmart. He went to his break came and talked Which to Walmart? us. Pedal. All right. He lived in Petal. His mom lived in Moselle. And um, he was he had been lived in Columbia for a while before he just moved back to Petal. He went missing, and a couple days later, his car was found on his mom's road two miles past his mom's house. And when they questioned the locals, someone said they saw um, a, a black woman getting out of the car, parking in the side of the road, getting in a truck with a black male, and leaving. And did they? And they've never found him since October we've been looking for him. The whereabouts of Street and Gerald remain a mystery, and whether they are alive or dead. In the case of Angela Freeman, she is legally dead, and Rusty Keyes, lead detective for the Metro Cold Case Unit, says he encouraged the family to go through the process in 2000 for closure, which they did prior to the memorial at the Greens Creek Baptist Church in January 2002. While state laws vary, most require seven years from the last official sighting and communication before officially declaring a missing person deceased. I don't think Angela, number one, if you look at, if you look at the timeline, it don't fit, okay? Number two, she didn't have the resources to disappear, okay? Like that, I mean. So you don't think like somebody who meant her harm took her and is keeping her all these years? Oh, no, no. Uh, and that's another thing, too. Uh, you know, you throw the traveling serial killer out there. Yeah, that could have happened. The chances of a, you know, of a psychopathic sexual serial killer or serial kidnapper coming through Pebble, right. Mississippi, at 12 midnight and happen to stop her and take her, take her car to the Perry Monted Bridge, mm-hmm. park the car, have somebody that had to drive the other car. I mean, so, I mean, you, you can sit there and do that all day, and it just don't make sense. One thing about murder cases, you've got to look at what makes sense. Humans are going to do what they what they do. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is that stuff out there that twenty percent, what I call alien stuff, that does happen. It's like, wow, I didn't see that. You know, see it. But 80% of the time, people are going to do what people do. And in most cases, when you finally solve them, it's pretty simple what happened. I mean, it is pretty simple. People are going to do things. And it's usually somebody who knows the person usually, most of yeah, the time. There is those, you got your Ted Bundys, you got your, I mean, they get the most press. Right. So you think they're everywhere. And there is a lot of serial killers in this country. The country's full of them. Yeah. But most people die at the hands of somebody they know. Crime of passion, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. I mean, they just know their killer. And there's no doubt in my mind, if you look at Angela and, you know, what we've learned from her, there's no doubt she knew her killer. Do you think the person is still in the community? 
living a normal life in the community? I don't want to say that right now. Okay. Uh, but. Well, I guess, do you think the person has done more of these over the years? Or I mean, you know, do you I, know? I, I, I if you don't want to. I don't want to say that okay. because I don't know. Okay. I mean, I mean, I don't know. This case is not solved. Right. But do I think, I'll put it like this. Where the case is going now mm -hmm. and where it is now, I do believe that the person responsible is still alive. Keith said that it was obvious early on to investigators that she was dead. I mean, Tommy Frederick and Jimmy Dale Smith very qualified. Tommy's deceased now. Jimmy Dale's retired. Very qualified seasoned detectives. They knew she was dead. Um, but you have to go through the process. I mean, you you know, Deborah had hope. When you say you know, they knew she was dead, at what point? Immediately? When, when some things first start, when some stuff started coming in, it just fit. I mean, it just fit. And we didn't officially... It wasn't never officially called a homicide case till I took it. And I, that's what I classified it. It's a homicide case. Just with nobody. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, and it takes a lot to finally say, there's no like written policy that says, okay, this is when you say it's this. Right. It's just, you, you just know when to mm -hmm. finally say, you know, she's not alive anymore. Yeah. I mean, does the prosecutor have to prove the victim's deceased? Sure. And hey, are there those cases, I mean, you've seen them, where these people are found 20, 30 years right. later living with other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at the house, where was that, in Cincinnati? That's what you I know, was, to, Cleveland. Know, That's, had, Cleveland when that whole, happened, I immediately thought of Angela Freeman. I mean, he had a whole house of girls. Mm -hmm. you know? So, can it happen? Yes. Do I believe that's what's happened to Angela? No. Oh. Cases like this, um, they're very interesting to people, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and people want to throw these conspiracies. Right, of course. I mean, just it's, it's, makes a, it makes a good story. Makes a good story. You know, some people it makes sense, uh, but it's pretty quite simple what happened to Angela. I mean, pretty, it's just, there's some things we haven't found yeah. yet. Do you expect, and you can tell me if you don't want to answer this, obviously I know you will, do you expect that the person who did this, is there a chance this person may just confess after all this time? hope so. Made my life a lot easier. Yeah. Um, I mean, that depends. Deborah I mean, believes that, like you, God's hand is at all of this, and that just a lot of things have happened recently. She she firmly believes the person is going to confess. I mean, I would once if if and when we make an arrest, I, I would I would love for that to happen. The person will be given that opportunity, of course. But at the end of the day, that is a people confess for different reasons. Right. Um, so, I mean, that would depend on that person. Right. You know, you know sometimes it depends. Some people confess because, hey, you got me. Right. You know, why not? You know, I mean, what, what else can I say? Then and there may be that you don't got me. Prove it. Right. You know, and then there's those that just by conscience. 
I interviewed a, a young man one night that uh, committed a, a robbery murder in another jurisdiction around here. Uh, this was several years ago. And that guy, I mean, he confessed easily, quick. I mean, he, he gave me eight pages of statement. I mean, he just wanted it. He wanted to say it. Yes. He was proud of it. I mean, you got those oh, that are just proud of it. Not sorry, mm -hmm. guilty, but then oh, you got wow. those that are sorry. That, I mean, they just sit there and weep when you know, you're getting a confession. Then there, you know, I mean, there's no doubt I've interviewed, I've interviewed evil. I mean, I look, sure. I look at Satan in the face. I'm sure. Do you think, and there may be no statistics mm -hmm. to back this up, do you think most people are are killed in the heat of the moment and if you look and people are remorseful? Is that more common? They may be remorseful to their self, but they just may not. They may have the personality. They don't show it. Uh, I think, you know, most homicides, people know their killer. If more were remorseful, then we'd be clearing more. One of the interesting bits of information I learned during my interviews was that Bill Stewart, Angela's stepfather for two weeks, having married her mother Deborah just days before Angela's September 93 disappearance, had already taken out life insurance on his stepdaughter. Deborah and Roger both told me that the life insurance was on Angela, but not on Nicholas. He's got any life insurance on Angela. He had life insurance on Angela? However, Keith said he believed it is only interesting in light of Angela's disappearance, as step-parents often insure children they are supporting. Rusty said that it would have benefited Deborah, too, as they were married. And without a body, there was no insurance payout for quite some time. But if Bill collected Debbie, Deborah... Because they were still married. Okay, so... Which... Were, did they push to have her declared dead? No. Okay. No. Sure did. That would have matter made fact, it. Matter of fact, it never when we declare her till we kind of pushed it okay. later. All right. That would help us with a no body case. Gotcha. There's a different set of standards when you're trying to prosecute a no body. You got to prove corpus delicti. You got to prove it. And being declared dead helps that. I've worked cases before that dealt with life insurance policy being a motive. The doctor case was huge. Yes. There's another serial killer I got, a female, that that killed a, a, a toddler for his life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it happens. Yeah. But but things are investigated. Okay. So. We're not going in that direction. In the next episode of Telling Lives, we will have a reunion of sorts. You'll get to hear from the girls in the photo. Check the Telling Lives podcast Facebook page or our website to see the last high school photo she took with her friends, along with other photographs from her life. Several of Angela's best friends have reached out in the last month to offer their memories and their theories. So stay tuned. The next episode will be posted in about three weeks after the holiday break. Enjoy some time with your family and Merry Christmas. Angela. Telling Lies.
Lives is brought to you by reporter, writer, and host Elizabeth Christian, producer Brian Manuel, associate producer Jerry Clark, reporter and researcher Alina Noakes, audio editor Andrew Vance Miller, audio transcriptionist Lance Christian, research assistants Brett Williams, Marilyn Barfoot, Trinity Baugh, and Abigail Jones, photographers Abigail Jones and Grace Miller, original music by Nicholas Freeman. If you like this episode, subscribe to Telling Lives Podcast on your favorite podcast app. And if you have any information about the disappearance of Angela Freeman, contact us at tellinglivespod at gmail.com. There is a $12,000 reward for anyone with information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Angela Freeman's disappearance. Contact Rusty Keys at the University of Southern Mississippi Police Department. Special thanks goes to Louisiana College for partial funding support for this project. Luke 8:17.